After James Bond was Q, but before Star Trek had Q, and certainly had nothing to do with the whole QAnon mess right now. So, you know, a lot did of people, that mess you up at all when with the Q branding? Did anybody think? Yeah, people, really. Yeah, people say, uh, they say yeah, it's associated with QAnon. Nope, nothing to do with it. Don't I? I refuse to change my branding. But damn, I wish this fad would get by quickly. Yeah, I bet you're just chomping at the bit, right? Because yeah. you're like, I had Q first, and then they <laughs> no, just came and tried exactly. to take my brand. It's mine. It's mine. Don't take it. So have we started? Or yeah, we're going right now. We're oh, okay, rolling. great. I like to do a nice little rolling start. Sure, that works. To kind of keep okay. it. Take these off too. See you better. I had cataract surgery two years ago. I have worn glasses since I was eight. Needed them since I was four. Uh, the eye doctor actually said you probably needed them since you were born. You were just couldn't tell. And two years ago, they did cataract surgery. Um, and I don't need to wear glasses except to read. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, a miracle. 60 years having something on my face. Now, any chance I can, I'll Makes a off. difference. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah. I've been wearing contacts since ooh, middle school now. So for quite some time. And it's almost a foreign idea being able to see without an aid. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you have cataract surgery, I don't know what we're talking about, but apparently now it's cataract surgery. Um, one of the things, everything gets bigger um, and everything becomes more colorful. And I asked my doctor why, and he said, because your prescription was so, I mean, I was legally blind without glasses. He said, your prescription shrunk everything down to make you see better. So when you, of course, remove that, it's like, wow, everything got big. And cataracts are gray. So when you remove them, you see colors as they really are. And I remember like the first night going home and just like staring at everything, like the whole world had been freshly painted. You know, it was, it was great. And thinking, looking at something going, Oh my God, that's blue. All this time I thought it was gray. You know, oh, that's red. I thought that was orange. You know, so yeah, it's 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 a miracle as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Modern science is incredible. Yeah. The feast yeah. that we have conquered is it's pretty insane. And I think another hundred years from now or so, I mean, I'm sure they'll look back at this time, providing we survive, and they'll say, Can you believe they used to cut people open? You know, I mean that it's like look what it, what we do today will look like what they did to keep George Washington alive in the 1700s in another hundred years. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be the wooden tooth phenomenon. Yeah, like, and the leeches. Are still doing that? Yeah, the right? That was what leeches. they did? Yeah. That was their modern science. Yeah, huh? and that's what they did. So. And so is that how you got your start was in radio? So for people that don't know, you would self-describe as a life coach, a professional speaker what is your how would you define yourself <laughs> um, i joke as a matter of fact i think it might have been in that last column that that i wrote where you called me out of it um i've jokingly referred to myself as an iomab consultant i-l-e-m-a-b if it's legal and it's ethical and it makes a buck i'll give it a shot so <clears throat> when i went to college i had started i was going to be a doctor because I came from Jewish parents, that's what you become. But I didn't have the work ethic. You know, I went to college and I was like, oh my goodness, I'll go to the parties and I want to be on the helpline and work at the student store. And I had to put myself through it. We didn't have the money, so I had to, I had to work all the way through. Um, and then I graduated college and in my last year, last two years, I found the college radio station. Um, and when I was a I'm sorry, do you want to pull that just a little sure. bit? Sure. You can uh, sit back just... Pull okay. it in. All right, there yeah. we go. Uh, when I was a teen, I used to always have a radio on my side. I mean, I'd go to bed, I'd put it under my pillow. I mean, seriously. And uh, 
So I, wow, chance to be on radio, that sounds fun. So I became a disc jockey in college. That changed all of my plans. When I graduated, I got into the radio circuit. And uh, I was a very, very, very uh, obese child from the time I was born. Um, I was nine pounds, 14 ounces at birth and went up from there. I was always the kid that was beat up and teased. So I ended up joining Weight Watchers as a teenager and lost 100 pounds for my first time and ended up working as, in addition to being a disc jockey, I was what was then called a Weight Watcher lecturer. That got me into public speaking um, and Toastmasters, and I won a bunch of awards, so I followed the, the public speaking path. And a lot of public speaking is writing, hence the writing that came about. Um, are you a writer who speaks or a speaker who writes? It's kind of one of those. So I became a writer and a columnist, and I was working as a coach for Weight Watchers, or WW as they became called, uh, for over 30 years. And so when Weight Watchers went through all of its mess in COVID, um, I said, well, I'll just do it on my own. And that's so I'm professional speaker, writer, life coach. I also have a large background, uh, extensive background in marketing because of my media. So I do marketing consulting. Um, I love computers. I got involved in computer programming for a while. <laughs> you name it. I've tried it. Yeah. So a man of many hats. A man of many hats, yes. You started with Weight Watchers when you were a teen? How old are we talking? I was six, just turned, was 1970. So I would have been 16, and I was in my senior year of high school when I hit my right weight. Um, and for the first time in my life, I was thin. I graduated high school thin, uh, but I was always, and this was back in the day where I, I, I went to a large school. I was in L.A. There were 3,000 students in our, in our school, 1,100 in my graduating class. Um, and there were three of us who were overweight. Uh, wow. Yeah, it just wasn't a thing in the early 70s, late 60s. Um, so, again, if you were overweight. It was noticeable. Yeah, and everybody teased you. And, you know, I was called out to the flagpole many times. And I was a nerd. I wore glasses. Uh, for a while, even had the tape, you know. <laughs> um, so it was it was a tough time, but yeah, I lost my weight, kept it off for about ten years, put it back on again, took it off, put it back on, took it off, and uh, took it back off. Shall we say permanently in '94? So the weight loss aspect seems to be pretty intertwined with your story. Mm -hmm. I think I've heard or come across the term "thinspiration coach." Quite um, a few times. I was yeah. I originally, when I started into this field as a speaker, I decided I'd be a thinspirational speaker. I did not know, this would have been mid to late 90s, I did not know that uh, thin, thinspiration is a term used by mostly young women because anorexia tends to be mostly a female disorder. There are some boys um, and girls who are really entrenched in what's called pro-anorexia uh, call it they're looking for thinspiration. So there are websites all over, or there were, I don't know if they still are, but there are websites all over for girls to find Thinspiration, which is emaciated, starving girls uh, who are sick um, mentally as well as physically, um, who have such poor body image that they think they have to weigh 60, 70 pounds. They look like something you would see 
out of a concentration camp, you know, a liberation of a concentration camp. And Oprah uh, did a story about it, about Thinspiration Pro Anorexia, to which she said there are lots of Thinspirational websites out there. There's one called Thinspiration.com that is just evil. She never looked at the site because the site had nothing to do with that. It was me as a speaker. So I remember one day looking at my Google Analytics and I went through the ceiling. It's like, whoa, what happened here? Look at all of these people. I also had, must have been a hundred death threats, emails, and I go, what the hell? And that's how I learned that thinspiration is not a term to use, at least not anymore. So I got out of that. The cord is what I keep moving for is I keep sitting on the cord. Okay, there we go. That'll it's like the QAnon thing. The, yeah. <laughs> the changing of the times. Words just get rebranded. And if you're tagging along, you got to just hold out for the ride. Yeah, we were taught, oh, it was your th- wasn't your theme, it's a bumpy ride. Yeah. Isn't that what I yeah, saw that's somewhere? Kinda, I throw that around yeah. a couple times. Um, yeah, it's um, kind of like poorly named products in the 60s. There was a diet candy called AIDS. Uh, oops. Um, That's a rough one to bounce back from. <laughs> and on what was it? Downton Abbey, the dog's name was Isis, uh, who was actually, I think, a, a goddess. Um, and then, Like a Greek goddess? I don't know what, what background, but uh, the terrorist group or whatever you want to call them um, commandeered the name for maybe it means something completely different in Arabic. Who knows? But yeah. That just happens. People come along at a later point in time and just try to co-opt something that's already been established yeah. and just change what it means. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's happened throughout human history. Oh, yeah. We uh-huh. just do that. Yeah, well, I mean, words and language evolves. You know, the whole, call it political correctness or you know, trigger words or whatever else you want to use. Words that we use today, you know, or words that we used even 10 or 15 years ago, which were considered appropriate, I mean, you, you can't say things like that anymore, and in many cases, rightly so, uh, where it's just like we evolve and we go, yeah, that doesn't quite work anymore. So you expect other phrases to do the same. Has that been challenging for you as, I guess, would you say a storyteller? Because that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're yeah. doing up on stage. I, I would like to say story. that. Storyteller, yeah. Has it been challenging navigating the current, our current relationship with words in the modern world? It has its moments. Most of my communication now since COVID has been, you know, I haven't been on the road. Uh, I, I used to be on the road quite a bit, um, and I haven't been on the road a whole lot, well, because of COVID. Um, and as you get used to being at home, it's kind of like, I like the prospect of speaking. I mean, I spoke at some really cool places for some great audiences, large and small. And that I like, the process of getting from here to there. <clears throat> Not so much. I heard somebody say air travel has all the, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? All the, the beauty of a third world goat trail or a third world bus trip now. Um, but so most of my communication is now via the written word. And I will get periodically called out for something. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I will get periodically called out for something that I didn't realize was offensive and I try and weigh that with, I mean, I know I wasn't trying to be offensive because I'm really careful in what I write. I don't want to be offensive to anybody. On the other hand, I want my words to have some impact. 
I don't want it to all be muted, um, but I try and use correct words. But I'll get called out on stuff once in a while. I did a, uh, one of my columns several years ago was about being in New Orleans and trying to eat healthy while in New Orleans. And I don't know if you've ever been to New Orleans. New Orleans and eat healthy do not go together. Uh, and they're known for that. <clears throat> and everything was fried. And I went to a restaurant. I just wanted a salad. And, you know, my writing style is can be humorous. So I embellish, you know, go for the joke. Uh, I had a – my brother-in-law, who's also a writer, has a great line, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So, you know, I took the story and amped it up about a waitress. It was basically true who – said, what do you want? You know, and I said, I want a salad. She goes, okay, well, we got fried okra. And no, 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 I don't want fried okra. Just a salad. You know, we got fried green tomatoes. No, I don't want fried green tomatoes. You know, and was going through this whole litany of all these fried and caloric, unhealthy foods, caloric foods, yeah. you know, and, um, and then finally I said, no, just a salad, just lettuce, tomatoes, whatever. And her response is, oh, you must be from California. Yes. Yes, I am. Um, but so I wrote the story. I thought, a fun story. And there were some people, one person and then a bunch of other people jumped in who flamed me for being anti-Southern. And it was, no, this just happened to be where I was and that's the culture of the area. So I think sometimes people are a little more interested in being offended. Um, and for, you know, God bless them for whatever their reason, you know, uh, but yeah, I'll step in it periodically. I, I try not to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult road to navigate because everybody, it seems like the currency in some regards is being offended. Yeah. And then if you can check that box, you've got a little cachet you can wave around. Mm -hmm. But hey, you just offended me. We need to address this. I'm yeah. going to hold your feet to the fire now. Yeah. And I come from a spiritual philosophy. I'm also a, a practitioner in the spiritual philosophy of science of mind. Um, also known as religious science, which is basically where the law of attraction comes from. People are familiar with the law of attraction. It's an outgrowth of that. Um, and my whole philosophy is there is no separation. We are all one. You know, there. I mean, you and I look like we're different people sitting here, but really it's energy. We're all connected in some way, shape, or form. Um, and if you and I are one thing, why would I, it'd be like saying to my hand, I hate you. And hurting my hand. It's, it's, it's all part of you. So my interest is not in offending or hurting anybody, but on the other hand, I'm human. So I make those mistakes and some people like to jump into it and you know, say, see how you are. And then generational, you know, different generations consider different things appropriate or not, you know, so. Has it been interesting seeing the, the push for acceptance of people that are overweight? Cause that seems to be a, a new phenomenon, right? Now, if you, are a proponent of losing weight, it's almost like you're fat phobic. That's the word that gets thrown around that a lot. That does get thrown around a lot, and I've had to battle that a lot. But I'm not anti-fat or obesity or overweight. I'm pro-good health. And and this is what worked for me. If you weigh, and I'm, and I'm not being facetious, if somebody weighs 400 pounds and they're happy and they're in a life that they like and they feel fulfilled and they're healthy to whatever level that they want to be healthy, nobody else's job to tell them how to live, you know? I, I mean, but for people who are unhappy with whatever that, I use the word addiction, small a when it comes to food, because uh, it's an addiction, 
in whatever that addiction is, if you're unhappy, then it's time to treat it. And and all of my writing has in common this, the theme is strive for imperfection, is find ways to improve your life that will work for you mentally, physically, spiritually, uh, socially, however that may be. So if you weigh 130 pounds and you're unhappy, that's, I'm going to use the word far worse, but I don't mean it on a moral level. Um, That's, you're leading, your life is not as fulfilling to you as somebody who weighs 350 and is enjoying their life. So it's not a fat phobic, it's a pro-health. And as a life coach, I work with people who are, a lot is weight, because that's my background. But I've got one client who uh, is working on clutter. Uh, Their house is too cluttered, so we work on that. Um, I'm trying to think what else we've got going. Uh, Somebody else who's got, had a relationship issue. I believe we're all doing the best we know how to do with what we got. And at a certain point, it it's either working or at a certain point you go, it's not. And then it's how do you change it? Because it isn't easy. And with regards to food, unlike other addictions, let's say alcohol or drugs or, or even smoking or something, there's a bright line in the sand that you can cross. If I say I'm not going to smoke again, I can hold a cigarette I can take the cigarette right to my mouth. I can be surrounded by cigarettes. I can buy cigarettes. I know when I've broken my promise. When it's food, I, I mean, you can't, the grammar in this is horrible, so the writer in me is, is screaming. You can't not eat. Um, you have to eat. So it's, where is that line? For example, are French fries bad? No, there are thin, healthy people who eat French fries. Um, Is a salad good? Uh, No, there are really overweight people who eat a lot of salads. So it's, it's not only what you eat, but how you feel about it. It's a thought process. So if I eat something, back to the pro-anorexic people, um, if I eat something and I feel bad about what I've eaten, I'm going to do something to deal with that emotional pull and the way people who are overweight, many of them, deal with emotions is they eat. Because let's be honest, it feels better to eat chocolate than to be upset. So it's like, all right, I'll eat some chocolate. Oh, now I feel better. Well, uh, next time something comes up, whatever it might be, take a look at the world, um, and I feel stressed, I go, oh, I feel stressed. Oh, I can go eat some chocolate. And so I eat some chocolate again. And then I feel better. Well, I eat enough chocolate or whatever the food might be. I start putting on weight. Now, because I'm putting on weight, I feel bad about myself. Well, because I feel bad about myself, because, God, what an idiot. I mean, I'm not, but that's the internal dialogue. What an idiot. It's like, okay, well, God, I feel bad about myself. What am I going to do? Well, I guess I'll go eat something. And this cycle just goes. Um, It's the normal addictive cycle. But with food, you can't say I'm never going to eat again. Yeah, Yeah, you have to eat at some point. Yeah, it's a real love-hate relationship with food for those of us who battled it. I wish I didn't have to eat. You know, I, I, to this day, do not have a... I've got a healthy relationship with food, but I'm not like some people who are like foodies. I'd love to be able to 
prepare something and make it all elegant and all that. And But I know me, I'll just eat the whole thing. So it's like my approach, keep it out of the house. That's the first rule of addiction is don't have it near you. Don't have your drinks in the house. You know, if you're an alcoholic, don't live in a bar. You know? That's good advice. <laughs> yeah, you can still be sober, but it makes it a hell of a lot more difficult if you've got your addictive substance right next to you than if it's, well, first of all, not in your life, but if it's somehow removed, if it's, you know, covered with a wall or something even. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> is that what you found a lot in working with your clients is that most of the people who are obese are struggling with that cycle? Oh, yeah. Where it's just an, this natural response state to some stressful stimuli. They get mm -hmm. stressed out. They get angry. They maybe had a rough day at work. They had their feelings hurt. And their response to that is, I'm going to eat something that makes me feel better. Yeah, and it's not even that conscious. And it doesn't start out like that. <clears throat> we all we all experience stress on some level. I mean, that's just part of life. You you can't make it through it without stress on some level. So we all have stress mechanisms. So when, for example, when I'm bored, um, I'll eat. Um, when I'm depressed, I'll eat. Uh, when I'm angry, I'll eat because they make the feelings go away. Um, there are people who, when they're bored, they'll read a book. Um, when they're angry, they'll go exercise. Um, when they're sad, they'll call a friend. And the clinical term for those people is skinny. Um, they handle their stressors differently. We all handle our stressors in some way, and food is considered socially appropriate. It's the only thing that is legal that you can do by yourself, that you can do in public and feels good. You know, nothing else fits that. So it's everywhere. We live in a country that, if anything, being overweight is an affliction of abundance. You know, half the world begs for what we throw away at the end of the day. I mean, let's put it in perspective. But I want something to feel better, and maybe I'm not, I don't feel comfortable talking to people, or maybe I was told, you know, shut up and swallow it. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, I've never learned how to exercise, maybe, as a way of dealing with it. Um, maybe I don't want to journal. That might be another way of dealing it. But, heck, you know, you eat something and a bag of chips. So it's like, wow, okay, well, I'm kind of angry. I'm going to get a bag of chips. I'll teach him, you know. And then that makes it temporarily go away. Of course, if you eat too much, you start to gain weight. And because you gain weight, now you feel bad. Because you feel bad, you're looking for a way to deal with it. So you eat some more. It doesn't make sense. It's not a logical thing. But we all have that cycle somewhere. The difference between somebody who's overweight and somebody who's not is you can see it. You know, if, if you drink to excess and you get up in the morning and you can, and you're what would be called, I guess, technically a functioning alcoholic, um, and you go to work and you get your job done, and your relationships are acceptable, even happy, um, but every night you drink till you collapse, nobody will know that. Um, if you take drugs, you know, and that's your way of coping, and you're functioning within society, nobody will know that. Um, whatever, you know, if you're a rageaholic, if you will, which is a, on a totally different level, <clears throat> and you can't handle your rage, but you go home and you're seething, 
But you go to work and you go through the day and people think, oh, you're a nice guy because that doesn't come out very much. Nobody will know. But if you eat too much, there's no way to hide it. You, know, you, you can hold in your stomach, but you know that's about it. And people are very quick to judge and very quick to blame. And nobody wants to look at themselves. So they're going, that guy really needs to get his act together. Well, look at yourself. Get yourself together. And the way to deal with people who have, who have any sort of addiction, food included, is compassion and kindness. Um, and not an inappropriate rescue, which is so many people jump into. It's like, oh, you, you know, I can tell you how to lose weight. I didn't ask. You know, <laughs> it's a, um, That's an interesting idea, inappropriate rescue. Yeah. We inappropriately rescue all the time. Um, the desire is to... So for the people who are listening and for you for that matter, I had no idea what I was walking into when I came here, so I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> so you'll just steer me or I'm going to go in every which direction. Um, <laughs> but every behavior, every behavior we do is generated by positive intention. There is no exception. Um, so if I'm eating to excess – the intention is not to ruin my health. The intention is not to gain weight. The intention is certainly not to be a subject of ridicule. The intention is to feel better, to have some happiness or get rid of some feeling I don't like or be part of a social group. You know, we're all out to eat or whatever it might be. But every behavior has side effects. And the side effects are what you didn't expect. So... My intention is to somehow deal with my stress, my sadness, whatever. The side effect is I gain weight. Um, but every behavior will take even the most um, – so this is where I get – I tend to get in trouble because I'll use an example that I think is a legit example. So I go, how can you say that? Um, but even if you take a look at somebody uh, like, like terrorists and whatever a terrorist might be, I don't think anybody would say outside of their circle that what they are doing is uh, is a um, positive intent. Okay? But within that circle, what they look at, and this is not excusing, I am not condoning, here's all my writing is, I'm not saying this, um, but within that circle, they think, and I think most of us would agree wrongly, they think that what they are doing is making the world better by ridding the world of these people. You know, even let's take a look at Ukraine right now. I mean, Putin, as far as everybody's concerned, everybody who's rational, is lying about why he's gone into Ukraine, getting rid of Nazis. For God's sake, the president is, a, is Jewish, you know, um, uh, the president of Ukraine. But his, what he's telling everybody is we are protecting our country and therefore, therefore are inflicting all of this, I don't believe in evil per se, uh, but they are inflicting all of this damage, this malevolence, this hatred on people who had nothing to do with it. The intention is positive, doesn't condone it. And by positive, I don't mean on a moral level. On positive, I mean to improve one's life. So somebody who drinks bringing it back down to the micro level, 
their intention is to deal with what's going on in their life. The side effect is they might become an alcoholic, ruin their liver, or damage their health. Uh, somebody who beats their spouse, their life partner, their intention is to deal with the rage or the fear or the sadness that they have. The way they do it is inappropriate. The way they do it is wrong. The side effect is what they've done to that person. So the key to change any long-term habit is to find out what is the intention you're trying to do and then to realize there are other choices. If my intention is to deal with the stress at the end of the day and eating is ruining my health, then I got to step back and say, okay, what I'm really trying to do is come home and relax, come home and let my work day go. But if I keep doing this, I'm going to keep putting on weight and that's not what I want. What else could I do? Oh, um, maybe I could read. Uh, maybe I could go take a walk. Maybe I could call a friend. And I heard Ted Koppel interviewed on David Letterman years ago. And you know, Ted Koppel used to be the interviewer, not the interviewee. And David Letterman said to him, how does it feel to be on the other side of the desk? And he said, well, it feels kind of normal. We're having a conversation. He goes, but it's kind of like wearing somebody else's underwear. Something doesn't feel quite right. So when you start these new behaviors, it's kind of like wearing somebody else's underwear. It's like, I really want to eat something. You know, but instead, I'm reading a book or I'm taking a walk. But over time, what happens, if you allow yourself to do it enough, is the first time it's, I won't say painful, it's emotionally painful. You're like, God, i got to eat something, you know. Um, but I'll go take this walk. I'll go take this walk. So, all right, I take a walk. And then the urge passes because the urges pass pretty quickly. And then the next day comes up and Oh, I got that same stressor going on. Oh, wait, yesterday I took a walk. I'll go take a walk. Um, and then the third day, I mean, it's not quite this linear, but the third day I do it again. It's like, okay, it starts to become an ingrained pattern. And what you do is you don't drop a bad habit. You replace it with another habit. Because if you just say, I'm not going to eat when I'm stressed, you're like, you're itching. Yeah, you're just white-knuckling it is what I call it. But if you say, okay, when I'm stressed, what am I going to do? And I plan in advance, I'll go, okay, well, next time I'm stressed, I'll go take a walk. Or next time I'm stressed, I'll go read a book or I'll call a friend. And it'll feel weird because for years I've done this without thinking. And now I'm having to think. It's like, oh, what am I going to do? And then I wasn't born using food to deal with stress, I developed that habit, as anybody did. We've developed our habits over years. They make our lives easier, positive intent. Um, and now it's like, it's not serving me anymore. So what else can I do that will serve me that will not have the same side effects? And everything has side effects. Like I said, somebody who, uh, you look pretty fit. I presume you do some sort of exercise on a regular level. There are some people who they get out and it then becomes their obsession. I got to run five miles today. You know, I've, I've got people who are like that. It's a weird concept to me. But, um, and, and if they can't do their thing, they start to feel bad. Well, yeah, everybody has addictions. Yeah. It's just uh -huh. picking an addiction that doesn't lead to your demise in some sense or maintaining a little cap on it and saying, okay, I'm going to do this in a healthy way so that it doesn't obstruct my life and where I want to go and what I want to do. And for me, the, 
I don't know whether this is the technical definition of an addiction, but it's an addiction when it's controlling you versus you controlling it. You know, if you, back to the eating thing, if you say, I'm going to go out and go to, I am so grateful that, uh, what's that called? Cold Stone Creamery doesn't exist up here. <laughs> somebody goes, one of my Weight Watchers meetings, somebody said, oh, I wish Cold Stone Creamery said, oh, I don't. That's the last thing I need. I don't need that here. I'd be there every day. Um, but if I want to go to Cold Stone Creamery, if I want to go get pizza, uh, whatever these foods are that are considered, there's no bad foods. There are caloric foods. Um, so if I want to go get one of these highly caloric foods, but I'm doing it with intention, positive intention, okay, I'm doing it with intention, like, okay, my wife and I want to go out. We want to go, I don't, I don't want to go eat a salad today, you know, <laughs> I want to go out and I want to splurge. I want to have something that's got cream sauce and, and is flavorful and, uh, and is kind of a celebratory sort of food and Lettuce is not celebratory, so we'll go out and have something fun. But I'm doing it knowing that I'm going to do this versus I can't resist. That's when the addiction kicks in. Do you think there's ever an appropriate time for that kind of intervention, though? Uh, Where maybe a comment from a family member or somebody close to you saying, hey, you know, I notice you've been putting on some weight. I'm not sure if it, how it's affecting you, but it's something I just thought maybe we should talk about. I want to mm -hmm. make sure you're doing okay. I'm I would hope that you. would be in any honest relationship. I mean, I've we've had those conversations. I have been we've been together almost thirty years. Been married since two thousand, so it's you know, twenty three years. Um, and it's what I call courageous conversations. Um, and I remember several years ago, uh, my wife saying to me, "I'm concerned with you because the, the guy I married is kind of disappearing." You know, and, and I want you to make some changes. And she was brave enough to say it. I was smart enough to listen. And I said, okay. I don't think what most people realize is, and, and I can talk extensively from weight loss and healthy habits, they will hire me, come to a Weight Watchers meeting, go to the gym, whatever their approach is to try and lose weight. Their initial thought is, I eat too much, or I eat poorly, or I don't exercise well, whatever the combination is that causes the weight. And that's true. But what they don't realize is that's the symptom. That's not the problem. The problem is something underneath there. Maybe they're in a relationship they're unhappy with. Uh, maybe they're, what's John Mellencamp's line, realizing there's more days behind the cart than in front of the horse, you know, which is what I'm going through at this point. It's like, oh, my God. Um, and this is their way of dealing with it. So oftentimes when people get into dealing with, I'd, I'd go so far as any sort of addiction, but certainly with weight, what they realize is, there's layers underneath they got to deal with. It's They've set up their lifestyle to make it easy to do this. So one of the things is they don't talk to their, their spouse or their partner. That's just for whatever reason, positive intention. Maybe they were raised with the belief of, you know, don't complain. You know, you're whining if you complain. Um, so they, they suck it up. 
pun intended on the food, uh, they suck it up and they realize that as they're losing this weight or they're making these changes, I, I use a technique in speaking called sculpting, which is a, a visual representation of, of, of an emotional state. It's, it sounds really heady. It's not quite that big. Um, and one of the examples I use is what it's like when you change. And so if you can envision a stage or something and you've got one person standing, I would call somebody up on stage who wanted to. Um, and I would say, okay, you're going to change. And the way we're going to visualize change is quite simply, you're just going to walk from here to here. That's change. That's you making a change. Okay. Can you do that? <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Person walks. Great. You've made a change. Okay. Now let's make it real life. And I'll call up some other people. And I say, these will be the people in your life. So when you change, who does it affect? And I'll go, oh, well, my husband. Okay, great. Let's put your husband on your side here. So husband will, person playing the husband will stand there and put his arm on, on the person's shoulder. Um, and who else? Well, my kids. My kids. Okay, let's, somebody will represent kids. They put their arm on your shoulder. Uh, my, the people at work. You know, I, they, they notice when I'm in. okay, so let's get some people at work and they're ha kind of hanging on to you too. So it's all visual because in reality, you don't have everybody hanging on to you. But now say, okay, now change. And the person will try and walk and one of two things will happen. Either everybody will come with that person and walk across the stage or they're going to hang on to the person and the person can't move. That's the visual representation of change is when you change all of these other people in your life have to change if they wish to still be with you. So what happens is some relationships fall apart, hence the divorce I went through. You know, I remember when I started losing weight, she said, you're planning to leave me, aren't you? I said, no, I want to get healthy. Uh, I'm going to get healthy either way. I'm hoping you'll come along, though. She chose not to. God bless her. She went her way. Um, but as you go through these changes, other people have to change. Well, I, I, I still want to hang out with Nick, you know, but he's not doing what he used to do. Well, then you got to go do what he's going to do, or you got to talk to him about it. You know, so it requires communication and people don't know how to do that. And then the other thing is too much of communication is call it third person. You know, it's, or I guess second person, you need to, you need to stop doing that. You used to be more fun. You know, uh, I, I, you were a lot more fun before as opposed to first person communication, which is very scary and hard to do is I'm afraid you're changing. I'm afraid you might not want to be with me anymore. And it sounds irrational, but if you've been with somebody, this happened a lot because most of my clients are women because it's usually women who are more concerned with their health. Sadly, men need to be more concerned, but women have a lot more social pressure about looking good and being healthy. And I would have so many conversations with women who were like, you know, my since I've started to lose weight, my husband's like angry with me all the time or he's he says he's supportive and I think he is. Well, What's going on, speaking on behalf of all men, uh, <laughs> which is irrational too, it's like he, he might be comfortable with how you are right now. He loves you exactly for how you are. 
one's weight is usually more of a problem for the person who's carrying it than the people who love them. You know, the people who love you, they don't love you because of what the number on the scale. They love you because of who you are. And he might have his own insecurities. And now you're losing weight and you're feeling your oats. And you're dressing a little differently, you know, and you're maybe more playful, uh, certainly more self-confident. Who is this woman I've been with? Oh, my God, as my ex said to me, you're losing the weight so that you can go off on your own. No, no, that's not what's... So it needs communication. And we are... <laughs> Just look at our world today. We are not good at communicating. That's... So that's where a lot of the work has to take place. The trend of people turning against you when you try to improve any aspect of your life is a very disheartening phenomenon. I dated this girl for a while, and she didn't like that I would get up to go to the gym. And in her defense, I was getting up at like 4.30 to go to the gym. <laughs> but she did not like it. Mm -hmm. She didn't like that I was, you know, not sleeping in with her or or doing this other stuff, or staying up late. She did not like that I wanted to go to the gym. And I tried to have this conversation with her of, well, I feel better after I go to the gym. You know, I need that physical stimulus so that I can maintain some semblance of sanity. And it just didn't connect. And mm -hmm. it was a point of contention in our relationship, was me doing this thing that I viewed as bettering me, hopefully bettering us and our ability to communicate. And it was, she wasn't a fan of it. Yeah. And if we go back, and I'm not knowing the relationship, but if you were one of my clients and we were taking a look at that, we would go take a look at, okay, she's feeling a positive intention. She wants a relationship with you. And the disagreements that you were probably having at that point, especially since you said was dating and not now married, uh, <laughs> but the disagreements you were probably having were to one extent her wanting to be with you and closer to you and you wanting to feel good because when you feel good after your exercise, it's like, damn, I, I, yeah, I want to be with you. I'm feeling great right now. I'm much more fun when I'm feeling good about myself. And your positive intention did not jive with hers. And if there was some way to get that communication and both parties have to be willing to do it, of course, to get that communication going about, okay, well, what is it that you girlfriend want and here's what I want, and how can we find something in the middle that suits for both of us? I, I learned a uh, four words that are necessary for every relationship. This was from a therapist who I saw for quite a while, and her name was Jean Fowler. She passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. What a, what a loss. What a positive woman she was. Lived in McKinleyville. Um, but the four words in every relationship are yes, no, ouch, and next. Every relationship has to have a majority of yeses. Otherwise, why are you in it? You know, if there isn't a, the yeses are the commonalities. Want to go to a movie? Yeah, let's go to a movie. Want to stay home tonight? Yeah, let's stay home tonight. You want pizza? Sure, let's have pizza. Most relationships that are going to work need to be the majority of yeses um, if they're healthy. Any two people will have some no's. That's where you're going to bump heads. You want to do this? No, I don't want to do that. Well, I want to do that. Well, tough. I don't want to do that. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. So how you deal with the no's then becomes the next thing. If there are too many no's or the no's become too personal, if you will, the next word is ouch. When you say that, I feel hurt. When you say that, it brings up feelings of this. 
rightly or wrongly, these are my feelings. Okay. So, ouch. And if the if saying ouch, if there's too many ouches, and if saying ouch enough times doesn't change it, the final word is next. Leave with grace. So that's what every every relationship goes through. And when you get the nose, the key is how do I how do I find where there's some commonality in there? I, I believe that relationships fail not because of disagreements, I mean, to a point, but because we don't have the tools to handle the disagreements. You, know, you can be with somebody, love them till death do you part, uh, and you're still going to have disagreements, again, from Gene. Even the best relationships cause some pain. So the key is, when we have those painful moments, what tools do we have to work them out? And if the tools are the hell with you, you know, fuck you, if you will. I don't know if you have to. No, yeah, you can cuss in this. Okay, right. I figured as much. That was form-fitting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if the, if the response is, well, fuck you, I'm not going to change, you know, that becomes an ouch. As opposed to, I hear you, I don't agree with you. I want to resolve this. How can we do that? Um, and there are rules in relation. I have something I call fair fighting, which is four rules. I won't go into them now. But you, but when you're having those conversations, if both parties agree to these rules, you go a lot further to resolve it than just what happens in many relationships is we feel hurt. And now I'm just going to lash out and say, well, you hurt me. Now I'm going to hurt you. And now what you have is two hurt people instead of one. And so it gets amplified. So it, back to communication again. Yeah. I think communication is arguably at the core of most things in life, being mm -hmm. able to effectively communicate how you feel, what you want, what you're looking for. And I can speak personally. I don't think most people know how to communicate. I think I've experienced that in doing this podcast and I put myself into that group. I don't mm -hmm. think I still effectively communicate. But it is interesting, having talked to so many different people, both on the podcast and off, you realize it's a skill. It's mm -hmm. a skill that you really have to actively practice, and you don't necessarily get that practice in everyday life. It's not something you can do passively, just having some random conversation with somebody about the weather. It's right. something you have to intentionally work on and try to get better at. And yeah, that's how I made my career <laughs> because people don't. Uh, and I, I don't want to come across as like I got it all together because I get in disagreements with people too. I step in it. I have my moods. Uh, there, sometimes I, what causes conflict is expectation and noise. So two people are having communication, providing you're saying what I'm expecting meaning within the realm of who I think you are, not necessarily I expect you to use these words, um, and nothing gets in the way of that communication, we'll get along just fine. But when you say something that I didn't expect, um, or there's noise in the communication, and noise is, it could be literally, I mean, you know, I took out my hearing aids. It could be I didn't hear you well. That could be noise. Uh, it can be cultural noise. Uh, when my oldest son was six, he went to Alice Burney Elementary. Um, and at that point, I don't know if Alice Burney is still the same way. Alice Burney back then, so this would have been 
late 80s, maybe 1990. Um, Alice Burney back then, this was when Humboldt County was, I don't know whether they were exper- whether it was experiencing or it had already been going on, but a lot of Hmong and Laotian people were moving into Humboldt County. It's still, a, I believe, a significant portion of our population. And they came with different cultures. And there was a head lice epidemic that took place in Alice Burney Elementary School. Uh, which happens in elementary schools, you know. All yeah, not uncommon. Yeah, it's not an uncommon thing. So what the school was doing was calling all the students in, and they were going through their hair, where head lice live, um, literally nitpicking. They're called nits, and they're trying to pick them out, hence the expression. You know, So the nurse would call a student in and go through their hair and look for the nits and then pick them out. And then the student, I think, had to go home because I remember my son had him and he had to stay home for a while. Um, and what was happening is when they were calling in, I don't know whether it was the Laotian or the Hmong children, uh, the children of Asian descent, um, and they started to do that, these little kids were like, just freeze up. Um, Something was horribly wrong. And what we found out, the school management, I wasn't really in the school management, so I guess it's not we, what they found out was that within their culture, the top of one's head is the spiritual connection to God, as I remember this. I'm not hoping I get it correctly. So to take a child and touch the top of his head would be like in our society, touching a child in the crotch. And needless to say, it was causing a lot of problems and a lot of conflict. And not trying to downplay it or demean it, that was noise in the channel. The nurse, the intention of the nurse was positive. What came out was a big meeting that the school had to have with some... uh, translators or something to that effect. Uh, So they're like, oh, now we got it. So how do we deal with this? And a lot of the Laotian and Hmong parents didn't speak English. So now that further complicated it because the children did. And to speak to a parent through a child was also considered an affront. And again, this is in no way, shape, or form judging any of this. All of our cultures have things. So that's, that's noise in the channel. And that's where conflict comes from, is either noise or expectations. If the children would have come in and had been informed and it was noted that, okay, this is what we're going to do, and there was approval, that noise would have been gone. The expectations would have been fine. But because it wasn't communicated well, hence the conflict came in. So conflict happens because the way we were raised, because... We are too afraid to say what we really feel. It takes a lot of courage to be that vulnerable. Vulnerability is probably the bravest thing you'll ever do, uh, is to be that vulnerable. Um, So we don't communicate, and nobody's taught us. I mean, if you come from a family, like in my upbringing, um, it was like our family was, you know, uh, I don't like white napkins. Do white napkins make you feel bad? No, but I'm thinking... Blue napkins would be okay. Well, let's talk about the difference between blue napkins versus white napkins. So, within my background, it's normal to kind of discuss everything. My wife's background was not the same way. So, when we have a disagreement, I want to go, okay, well, let's talk about this. No, I just need some time to process. And I say, 
all right, I got to just let you process. I hate processing. I want to work on things. That is my MO. If there's a problem, I want to address it in the moment. I want us to work through it so that we're not thinking about it two days later and it's still festering. Mm -hmm. I want to address it right then and there so we can move on. You you and I would get along well in a disagreement. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But some people don't. You know, they need time to process or they've been told that they're, they're, I'm not speaking for my wife now. Um, they've been told that their their goals, their desires are stupid. You know, just suck it up. You know, again, I've used that expression repeatedly. Uh, I remember when in my first marriage, when uh, her father passed away and my first marriage, she's passed away now. So it, it's okay to, I think, speak about it. But uh, we split up partially because of, I had a food addiction. She had a drinking addiction, you know, and the two of us fighting all the time. And there was a period where she was sober. She was in recovery. And when her father died very suddenly, um, she didn't have the crutch of the alcohol to deal with the feelings. And we were over at their house and she broke down and started crying about the loss of her father. To me, that's, I, I, not only would I say that's normal, but that's probably healthy. Uh, and so she, we were, I remember sitting on the front steps and she's crying and her brother, she came from a large family, said, I, I won't say their last name, so we'll say Smith. Um, but he said to her, stop crying, suck it up. You're a Smith. We don't cry. To them, and I remember thinking back then, ooh, uh, but to them, that was the badge of honor. Uh, the Midwestern. Toughen up. Yeah, tough it up. And that, to a large extent, is part of our culture, the American culture, the, the, the West, the independent, you know, the, the, the macho guy who can handle everything on his own. Well, the macho guy hurts, but he doesn't feel comfortable talking about that because it's equated with weakness, and it's not. You know? So, yeah, it, we're, we're complicated beings. That idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps has come up a number of times on this podcast. Oh yeah. And I have so far found myself on the opposite side of it because I feel that I pretty much embody that ethos to my core. The idea that your problems are your own and you need to process them and work through them and not burden other people with them. That is what you believe? or that's Yeah, what that's what I believe. Okay. I feel like that is ingrained in my core and I uh-huh. recognize that it's probably not the most healthy outlook on life. But I also think there is some validity to understanding that your problems at the end of the day are just that, your (laughs) problems. And if you are not willing to come to your salvation and help you get back on your feet, nobody else is going to do that for you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the idea of ideas can set you up for life or hinder you in whatever your pursuit is. One One of my big problems is the idea that this is just how I am. And when people say that when they're fighting or they're engaging in this behavior that's maybe not the best for them, and their excuse is, well, this is just how I am. I believe we should always be trying to improve ourselves. And if you find some fault in an idea or some behavior that you're engaging in, try to improve it because your life is going to be better. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily everyone's approach, which I find conflicts with me a lot of the times as I get into these battles of, well, I'm trying to do this. Like, don't you want to do that? And then we get... Well, there's that expression about when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yes. Um, so if that is the only tool you have, 
that's a problem. But sometimes it's true that, no, this is, this is how I am and I'm not going to change, but I'm owning that as opposed to, again, being a victim of that. It's, this is how I am. I'm going to die on this hill because this matters to me. This goes to my values, my core, my beliefs. I see no reason to change it. I'm not open to having it change. That might be part of a problem. But I see no reason to change it. I'm not open to having it change. And this is where I'm going to be. But I'm doing it consciously as opposed to this is how I am and I can't change. That's bullshit. You know, you weren't born this way. You changed to get this way. Therefore, logically, you can change to get somewhere else if you want to. And my theme, my column, is called striving for imperfection because what people then do is they say, okay, well, then I'll just change overnight. I'll just be perfect in this new way. No, it won't work that way. I, I, I like to meditate when I can. There's a, an app I use a lot called Insight Timer. And one of my favorite things to do when I'm willing to take the time at night is to put on Insight Timer, find a, a guided meditation or some music and just zone out. And I wish I could remember the name of the guy I discovered it the other night, but he had a great affirmation that he closed his meditation off with. And it was part of the reason I liked it was it, the affirmation starts, as you'll hear in a second, just for today. So just for today, I will not anger. Just for today, I, oh, blast, I will not anger. Just for today, I will be kind. Just for today, I will be peaceful. And that's the key, is in this disagreement I'm having with you at this moment, I don't need to change, but just for now, I'll listen to your ideas. And that's where it all starts. Everything, every idea Every invention, every podcast studio, every, everything you buy, every person started with two words. The two words are what if. What if I could have a podcast? You know, what if I could have this relationship? Uh, what if I could go to New York City? Because you've got a photograph on your wall over there uh, of New York City. Um, what if... I could have a child. What if I could be happier? What if I could be an artist? You know, what if we could have a more peaceful planet? It all starts with what if. So when I'm in this relationship and, and, and we're butting heads, the question is, what if we could figure out a way through this? What if we could do this without fighting? What if we could be happier? Because once you say what if, the follow-up question that immediately comes is how? As opposed to too often we ask the question why? Why are we fighting again? Why is the world like this? Well, that's a nice intellectual exercise. But it doesn't really change anything. But what if or how? How do we change it? Now you get a path. Now you might not like the path. You know, what if we could stop fighting all the time? Okay, well, how would we do that? Well, you'd have to, I, I and again, it wouldn't be you in fair fighting. It would be, I need you. Uh, I need you to listen to me more. You know, 
which would need to then be further defined. Um, but I need you to listen to me more. No. Okay, well, now we're at a dead end. Um, but okay, how do I show that I'm listening to you more? And you can then see now the path starts to unfold. Well, I would like it if you didn't interrupt me. I can do that. Now we have the basics for something moving forward. But it all starts with what if and how. And too often it's I'm going to stake this ground and this is the way it is and I'm who I am. Um, the whole within the political climate of so many politicians saying never apologize. What if you did? If you made a mistake, what if you apologized? What would be the horrible, terrible thing? Oh, it's weakness. No, it takes Gandhi said it is only the strong who can forgive. You know, I think that's what he said. But it's like, why not show that you're strong enough to go? It didn't work. What I did didn't get the results that I wanted. And I'm strong enough and willing enough to take the slings and arrows to say, I'll try something different. What if? Yeah, you should be able to apologize. I think the problem gets into this realm where people just apologize to get the benefit of the apology. They don't actually mean the apology. <laughs> Back to the intention. Yeah. 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 And a lot of that ties into the idea that you need action. Action mm -hmm. is foundational to every to everything. Because if you recognize these problems, you recognize these what-ifs or how do I fix these things, and you never implement any action, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Yeah, Your life it, is going to be miserable. It's just an intellectual exercise again. It's a, it's a feel good. It's like, oh, I apologize. Like the apologies. I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not an apology. Yeah, that's, yeah I'm sorry you think I did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like that. I, a, a, a sincere apology is I am sorry for what I did. I might not have intended it to be that way. I don't even think it was really, you know, I, I am sorry that my words came across in a painful fashion. wasn't my intention, but I see how you took that. Okay. And because I love you, I don't want to inflict pain on you. So how can I change that? Now, it might be that the request, you know, the answer to uh, an acceptable answer to a question is no. Well, will you do this? No. Okay, that's acceptable too. But again, let the questions develop and be willing to apologize if that's what it takes. You know, at least if the person matters to you or if at least if the situation does. Do you think that some of the realization aspect of these things that we're talking about stems from having been on the opposite side of that? Like, do you think going through the trouble that you experienced with your first wife, do you think you wouldn't have been able to recognize those those pitfalls had you not gone through that. So I think about that a lot, that the challenges and the hardship that I've experienced in my own life and come out through and been better off for having gone through it, I don't know if I would have come to those realizations without those experiences. If I was just listening to somebody talk about, hey, don't do this because it leads to X. Or if you date somebody that you're not compatible with, it could fuck up your life and it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> right. But then you make that mistake, unfortunately, and you say date somebody that you shouldn't be dating and it's chaotic and it's rough and it's painful and then you make it to the other side and now hopefully you won't ever make that decision again and you can hopefully. recognize those things. Yeah, some people do and it's just 
repetitive cycle of what's what's the definition the of insanity doing the same thing over and over expecting yes. a different reaction and sometimes you don't even see it and you know you talked about you mentioned something a little while ago about it being where you're the center of whatever's going on you didn't quite word it this way but what finally triggered me to get the divorce we were married for 12 years um so it wasn't like we got married and two years later we said it's not working. I, I tried to stick it out. We went to marriage counseling. <laughs> when, when your marriage therapist starts recommending a divorce attorneys, you know it's, it's kind of a red flag. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of not working. Um, but I remember sitting up late at night. I, I remember very clearly I was watching the, like one of the first two episodes of NYPD Blue, and she used to go to bed before me. Um, and I'm sitting up by myself, and I'm thinking, you know, my my weight is I weigh 250 pounds. I'm having chest pains. I was 39, I think, at the time. Um, I'm having chest pains. I weigh 250 pounds. My finances are a mess. I never see my kids. My relationship is a mess. My career isn't working. God, what's in common with all the? Oh, shit. It's me. And once I accepted that and then dealt with the sadness that came with that without eating, that was the hard thing because the urge was, oh my God, I'm so sad. What a what a fuck up I am. I can't believe I've let myself do this. All the blame. If guilt and shame were motivational, we'd all be more successful. But that's the way we go. So I'm blaming myself over all these things I did. And I said, just for tonight, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to make the sadness go away. I'm going to just live in it. And uh, I remember, God, for like, Two days, nonstop crying, just, oh, what have I done to my life? But after I did that and I drained it all out, I was able to take a look around and go, okay, I have to change me. And that's what started me on the path to lose the weight. Uh, because what is the one thing? I can't change her. I don't know if I want to have a divorce. I know I don't want this relationship the way it is. Um, I can't change my career right now. I can't change my finances right now. Those will take time, but I can join Weight Watchers right now. Signed up for the next week. Um, and then that started the process. But it's to own what is yours. A again, without guilt and shame. It's just did the best I knew how to do. My intentions were good. These were the tools I was given. These are the tools I picked up and they worked for a while, but me in my 40s or 60s or 80s is not the same me that was 20 years ago, and those tools aren't working anymore. Um, so I got to make some changes, and that's scary and that's hard, but that's what I got to do. Do you think you needed that pain, though, to enact those changes? That's, I guess that's more so what I'm getting at is mm -hmm. this idea of the crucible. Yeah. That say you were overweight and weren't happy, but... Maybe your home life wasn't completely miserable and maybe you weren't bullied for being overweight and you didn't have these external pressures. Would you have ever changed? You know, that's a great question because I, I think back to, you know, when I was a, a really small child um, and like I said, bullied all the time and my weight became who I was. It wasn't a function of me, like I'm 5'7", it was, I'm fat. It's not, I weigh, it's like, I, a, lot of, a lot of people who are overweight, 
um, a lot of people who have any addiction, they, they refer to themselves by their addiction. Um, so I remember as a kid thinking that I could win the Nobel Peace Prize and wherever one wins the Nobel Peace Prize and, you know, you're Stockholm or wherever it is and there's a big ceremony, I'm sure. And I remember thinking that I could, I'm standing up on stage getting the Nobel Prize because I just cured cancer and stopped inflation and created unlimited energy and you know, all the people are applauding and there's some guy in the fifth row who yells out, yeah, but you're fat. And it would just devastate me because that was the worst thing. Um, all change, I, I started our interview with, all behaviors are generated by positive intention. All change is caused by fear, force, or pain. That's it. I mean, one might say, well, I was trying to improve myself. That's why I changed. You know, I started working out because I wanted to be more fit. Okay, well, in reality, one might argue, and I would, that you didn't feel you were as healthy as you needed to be, and you were afraid if you continued down this road. So, But all change is caused by fear, force, or pain. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, wow, I finally put on enough weight that I can go to the gym and lose it. You know, they wake up one morning and go, I, I, I can't move like I used to. Um, or my wife has said, the guy I married, you, you don't look like him anymore. What, what are you doing to yourself? Or the, or the doctor has said, you continue like this, you're going to have a heart attack by 40. Fear, force, or pain. You know, I mean, sometimes it's actual force. Um, so once I have that fear, force, or pain, then I'll start to make the change. The problem is the very behavior I'm trying to change is the behavior I use to deal with that fear or pain. So I weigh 250 pounds, I'm having chest pains, my life is a mess, um, that's fear, that's physical and emotional pain, I need to change. So the, what I have to do is give up the very thing that's causing the pain, but is also, that's alleviating the fear and the pain. The side effect is it's putting on the weight. So now I go, oh my God, the way I eat is causing this thing. So I got to eat differently. So now I feel sad. Now I feel fear and I can't do a damn thing with it. I just have to sit here and stew in it. Nobody likes that. So it's like, well, the hell with it. I'll start tomorrow. So I say, all right, I'll go back to it, which is why so many, what they call diets, it's got to be a lifestyle change. Why so many diets fail is because they go, okay, well, it didn't work quickly enough. I still felt those feelings. Hence the striving for imperfection. It's like, just for this one meal, one meal today, I'm going to limit it to salad. Uh, one, I'll take a walk. You know, I, it might not be a big one. I, one of the women who, one of the many memorable people I've met over my years of coaching uh, was a woman I refer to as the telephone pole lady. And the reason why will be made known in a second. She came to one of my meetings um, and she must have weighed. If, if I ever want to have a second career, I, I, I could go join a carnival and do weight guessing because I'm pretty good at it. So I'm guessing she was upward of 350. Um, a very, very large woman. 
And she was in pain and she was afraid and her doctor had said, you need to do something about this. And so when we sat down and we talked about what her plan was going to be, she said she wanted to be more active because she couldn't even move. She barely had the energy to get to her easy chair or whatever and just collapse at the end of the day. And so I said, all right, well, let's start out with some sort of exercise program as part of what you're going to do. And um, I said, the easiest one is walking. Doesn't take any tool. I mean, you got to have shoes and, uh, and a place to walk, and that's it. And she said, I, I can't even walk. So what we came up with is in her house, she lived in McKinleyville, in her house or outside of her house, there was a telephone pole at the end of the driveway. And so her first goal was to walk to the telephone pole and back every day. So I don't know, 100 feet? You know, I mean, I've got one of these watches and I usually do, I usually get all the rings and do about 8,000 to 10,000 steps and I play with my Oculus every day and I do 100 push-ups and all that, but I didn't start that way. So she decided to walk to the telephone pole every day and that was her goal and it took every ounce of strength she had to do it. And she lost five, 10 pounds, whatever it was. And she decided, okay, well, I'm going to go to the next telephone pole. And then the next telephone pole, little by little over time. And then she moved away and she came back to visit some family member and came to one of my meetings. And, you know, I looked at her and her name was Karen. I said, oh my God, Karen, you're a different woman. She goes, yeah, I've lost like 200 pounds, you know. And I said, that, that's fantastic. She goes, the thing I want you to know is I now walk 146 telephone poles every day. Now, I haven't a clue how many 146 telephone poles is. I actually went out and measured them. I think they're like 80 feet apart or something because I wanted to figure it out. But it started with her walking one telephone pole. And we so badly want to get out of that pain so quickly that we're looking for the quick fix. That's why all these fake diet remedies are out there, you know, lose five pounds a week without changing a thing. You know, it, it's, it's not true, but cause they're, they're playing to that pain um, as opposed to lose a pound a week, but keep it off forever. You know, now how are you going to do this? You're going to have to change your life. You made a series, no guilt implied. You have made a series of decisions and lifestyle choices that put you where you are right now. You didn't accidentally weigh 350 pounds. You didn't realize you were choosing to do that, maybe, or maybe you did. But you did all of these things. You chose to sit down in the evening instead of take a walk. You chose to have fried instead of uh, uh, not fried, whatever. <laughs> um, you chose to swallow your feelings instead of discuss your feelings. You made all of these choices. Now, it might have been the best you knew how to do. That's okay. Can't change that. Can't go backwards and change it. You did what you thought was right, but now you're here and it doesn't feel right. As the expression goes, if you always do what you've always done, you're always going to be where you've always been. Or the way I like to rephrase it is when you get tired of walking into walls, open a door. So do you want to change? If the answer is yes, then you have to do something differently. That's the bad news. The good news is it can be the smallest thing because once you do that small thing, once you take that walk to the telephone pole and you come back, 
And then you don't beat yourself up over it. Well, I only did one. That's what I call showing your big butt. Oh, you lost five pounds. Yeah, but I need to lose 10. So, oh, you walked to the telephone pole. Yeah, but I got a friend who runs a marathon. As I see you have on the wall over there. Um, so, but once you go, okay, no, I actually got up and I walked to the telephone pole. I did 500 steps today. Well, for me, 500 steps is I by eight in the morning, you know. But for you who never did any steps, hey, way to go. Congratulations and glow in it for a second because we never grow up. We become, basically, we become wrinkled kids, you know, inside. You know, I, you're obviously younger than me. I'm going to put you in your 30s or maybe 40s, you know. I'm uh, in my 20s, actually. Oh, I think you? it's the beard. The beard oh, okay. gets a lot of people, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so even more so. Um, I still feel basically the way I used to feel when I was 30 on the inside. I imagine you don't feel like you're aging on the inside. You look at you grow the beard or whatever. You go, oh, look at me. I'm looking a little different. Now I got gray hair, you know, all of that stuff. But inside, I still feel the same. And I remember when my, when my mother died, she was 74. And I remember talking to her shortly before that. And I said, do you feel any different? Do you feel old? And she said, no, not at all. She goes, the parts don't necessarily work the way they used to. The woman in the mirror doesn't look like I expect her to. But inside, I haven't aged since I was 25 or 30. That little kid who lives inside of us, who's still there, needs that encouragement. He needs somebody to say, good for you. Look what you did. You know, And if nobody else will say it for you, then the mirror has to say it. And a lot of people go, oh, that's you know, new age foo-foo you know, stuff. No, it really works. You know, We respond to words. And the words we hear the most are the ones inside our head. And if those words are caustic and painful, we will respond to it. What's the, if we said out loud to children what we say to ourselves in our heads, we'd all be locked up for child abuse. I watched your TEDx talk. Oh, okay. So you saw that line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's one of, one of my favorites. You already know the hits, STEM. But it's, uh, a, it's an effective idea. I mean, that's one of the biggest things you realize as you get older, especially your transition from a teen or young adult into more of what an, an adult actually is. Mm -hmm. You realize that the idea of an adult is kind of bullshit. That we're all just... <laughs> kids that get a little bit bigger and a have a little more years behind us but we're still just kids i really embrace that idea with covid and everything i was spending more time with my parents and i would get to see them interact with their friends and they'd go out and drink and have fun and hang out with each other and there would be moments where i'm just kind of taken aback by looking at them and watching them and realizing they're just kids they're just they're just like me they're just right. like my friends it doesn't change. Right. Like you're still just hanging out with your friends. You want to have fun. You want to be able to enjoy these moments with the people that you love. There's no real difference. If you take the visual aspect mm -hmm. out of, oh, they look a little bit older. Maybe they've got some gray hair. That you don't, there's no tangible separation right. between an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old and a 70-year-old. We're all, we're all just people trying to figure out life. Exactly. Nobody's got it any more figured out than you do. They've just gone down this path a little bit farther. Yeah, and as kids, we can't appreciate what our parents went through until oftentimes it's too late, you know, and then it's like, well, now, I mean, 
my mom's been gone since 2000, you know, and we had a good relationship and all, but, you know, I'm 68, she died at 74. I, I can very clearly remember my mother at this age. Um, and it's like, all right, I think I had a pretty good feeling for what she was going through, but when she was 68, I was 38, you know, a 30 year difference between us. Um, now, I think I know what she was going through, and she's not there to talk to, at least not in the way that I would like to have some communication. You know? So it's too late. Uh, what, what's the song I'm thinking? Anyway, there's some song about before it's too late. Um, uh, oh, I've, in my Oculus, I one of my exercise routines is I have one of those three-dimensional, the, the Oculus, you've probably seen it. The time. VR goggles? Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, it's got all these programs in it, which are, they're called dance programs. But what they are is basically you, you get immersed in this three-dimensional world where all these things are coming at you and you're punching them or dodging them or whatnot. And the one I was listening to this morning was somebody had done one to the Song of the Living Years by Mike and Mechanics. And it's too late. The line that's going through my head is, it's too late when we die. Um, is it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Song of the Living Years. It's about somebody who... It's a great poignant song, but uh, he and his father didn't get along. Uh, every generation blames the one before. So it's this whole thing about, you know, their whole communication was uh, talking in defense. Um, and then he finally, at the end, his father passed. He wasn't there the day his father passed away, but I think I heard his tears in my newborn child. Um, and it's like, it's too late when we die. It's like, do it now in the, the line that chorus is in the living years. Um, so it's, yeah, we're all doing the best we can, you know, and me at 68, I think I'm a hell of a lot wiser than I was at 48 because wisdom is what you get when you didn't get what you thought you were going to get. And I have a feeling, should I be fortunate enough to make it to 88? I'll probably look at 68 and go, he didn't really know what he was doing back then, as you will when you're in your 40s. And, I experience that daily. Every yeah. day, I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't actually know what I was talking about. I thought I did. Yeah. And that goes back to the humility and the willing to apologize and, and the own up to it. It's I, I was doing the best I knew how to do. You know, I just. There's a quote I love, and it's, I can't remember who it's by, but it's, do what you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. I, like I that. think that's yeah. that's how you should go about life. Is uh -huh. You can only act on what you know. And then when you're presented with new information that might be a little bit better, it's okay to adapt to that and yeah. change your stance and change your vision and then move forward with that. And then when you meet a new idea that's a little bit better, adopt that one. There's yeah. no shame. We I don't know if it's cultural or just the world today, but we get so attached to our ideas. And when we find out that maybe they're not 100% correct or a little wrong, it's not the idea is wrong. It's I am wrong. Yes, There's something exactly. fundamentally flawed in who I am. Right. And if I accept that this idea is wrong, I'm accepting fault in myself. I'm accepting imperfection. And that is destructive for a lot of people. They can't come to terms with that. So they double down. They hold on to this wrong idea and just continue to progress through life with that. Right. That's the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, guilt is feeling bad about a choice you made, behaviors you did. Shame is feeling bad about who you are, and shame is caustic. 
Um, it, it's, it's like, I don't deserve to exist. I am a mistake versus the behavior I made, even well-intentioned. And sometimes, you know, you know, it, it's like, you got your choice between this behavior that got the little angel and the little devil here and the little angel saying, do this, do this. And the devil's going, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, it's like, and you just really want it. It's like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm going to just step right into it, you know? Um, but even in those, it's just a matter of, I made the wrong choice. For some reason, there was something guiding me in that direction. But to say, I am a mistake. Now, what do you do? I mean, you, I mean, you can change that, I guess, but I'm not a mistake. My behaviors were a mistake, and that's okay because we're all doing the best we know how to do. You know, and it fell under the category, as so much of life does, of it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, now looking back on it, yeah, probably not. You know, but, but that's life. Yeah. That's life for all of us. Because we are all constantly faced with that. And sometimes you make the right choice and you get to progress. And sometimes you make the wrong one and then you circle back and work through it. And then you keep going. Yeah. Providing you're willing to do that. Yeah. You know, and again, getting rid of the shame out of there and saying, okay, well, I made the mistake. You know, we talk about uh, the stuff that happened in our past. And I, I've spoken of my first marriage if I knew then what I knew now, you know, I remember standing at the back of the aisle, getting ready to marry, and thinking, this is, this is, I, dude, this is a mistake. I mean, I, I think I loved her, but I think I also knew that it was a mistake. Um, but I didn't want to say anything because it would be too humiliating now. hundred people in the church, the whole thing, you know, oh my God, so I went through with it. Um, would it have been smarter if I didn't? Who knows? You know, I my sons are both from that relationship. And for the most part, I get along with my sons. Um, we have good relationships, I think. Um, I learned it was because of what I went through in that relationship that I lost weight. Would I have lost weight through another path? I don't know, maybe. But that wasn't the path I got. So I am where I am of... You know, would I have liked to have been thin growing up? I imagine. But I really believe the compassion and the kindness that I like to think of myself that I have now are because I know what it's like to be that person who is teased and abused. I have, um, in, in the training that we have gone through to become practitioners, it's a licensed, it's a licensed um, credential not by the state, but by uh, Centers for Spiritual Living. Um, we're taking a, uh, I just spaced on that one, we're taking another class right now. Oh, oh, and we have to pick one cause, not, I mean, it can be anything we want, but one facet of society that we want to change and treat for it, which is the spiritual living terminology for, for pray. You don't pray, you treat, you affirm a positive outcome, basically. Um, and the one that I have picked um, is intolerance because it, it does something where it just hurts my soul to see people who are picked on or made the other 
because of something they can't help, you know, because somebody is gay or uh, somebody dresses differently because that's how they express themselves or because they're of a different race. Um, it, it, it's just, it's hurtful to me to see that. I, I imagine it's hurtful to a lot of people, but for whatever reason, it really affects me. And so my thing right now um, is I'm focusing on finding more ways that I can be more inclusive. In my older days, I was more, what was that? Oh, my son, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, I was more judgmental, and I am less so now, um, because the way I was raised, the what, what I went through has had an impact. I don't want other people to feel that. You know, I, I, I don't want more us's and them's. I want just a we. Um, so... I don't know if I would have had that if I was the thin kid who came from an upper class background because my family was lower middle class. Um, I don't know, but doesn't matter. Intellectual exercise, why I am the way I am. Like I said, why doesn't help a whole lot. Yeah. That's an idea that I've constantly and, and still constantly working through is the idea that you can't really look back at the past and and think about what would have happened had you done something different. Yeah. Because it's it's an easy thought process to slip into. And you lose a piece of yourself going down that road. Because you don't know what it would affect now. Everybody mm -hmm. looks back and thinks, oh, if I change this, or I didn't go through this pain, or I didn't endure what I went through, life would be so much better and I'd be so much farther or in a different place that I might enjoy more. But you might miss out on everything that you enjoyed past that point. We all like to think that it would stay the good times would still be the good times, and we just have more yeah. of that. But that's not how life works. You might change something, and then maybe you never had your kids, and yeah. you would have lost out on that. And maybe that would have been better. I, sorry if you guys are listening. Uh, I mean, but it, it might. But I don't know. It's 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 an intellectual exercise. It doesn't make any difference. One of my one of the people who I really like is David Byrne from Talking Heads, speaking of the cataract surgery that I started out with. First night I came home, one of my very favorite things to watch is American Utopia on HBO, which is just, it's, it's David Byrne doing this, uh, and the people from Talking Heads, or a lot of his songs, it's really worth watching. And um, I came home to watch it because it just gives me so much joy. Uh, plus I realized they were wearing blue suits, not gray suits. <laughs> um, but he was just on, uh, he was just being interviewed a couple of weeks ago, um, and I think it was on Bill Maher, uh, who I'm not a big fan of, but nonetheless, um, I like David Byrne and he was saying, Bill Maher was asking him, are you nostalgic about your past? Cause he's 70 years old or 71 or something like that. And he's still very, very active and he's amazingly talented. I think I might've even written about him in a column just recently. Uh, he and Dick Van Dyke. Yes, I did. And he said, no, I'm not very nostalgic. I think the best thing is yet to come, you know? So it's like, Okay. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time looking back on what I did or didn't do because, I mean, sure, if I can learn from it, but to say, oh, I, I wish, you know, I, I think in that same column I wrote about, I find it really sad to talk to people who are my age and it's like they're still yearning for, I remember when I was in high school and I was a high school quarterback, well, great, but you're 50 years on. You're not going to be a high school quarterback anymore. 
and and you haven't been for probably about 48 years. So it's like, why spend all of that energy mourning what you used to be as opposed to, well, there's this way I'm still going to go. And there might be some really exciting things. I just produced a play at the North Coast Repertory Theater, um, which was probably the most fun I've had in I don't know how long. It was just, we had great reviews and it was, it was a hopeful play. It was a fun play. Um, and the play has ended and, and I'm dealing with post-show depression uh, because I really grew to care for these people. And I can't tell you how many people in the audience came up and said, you've, you've changed my life. It was, like I said, it was an empowering, fun play. And so I said, oh, geez, now it's over. And it's like, well, no, I, what'll happen next year? I mean, maybe there's something even better. I didn't know that play was coming up. You know, maybe there'll be something even better as opposed to, oh, I want to go back and live in that. Now enjoy the memory, but turn that way and start looking towards the future again. Cause that's, really all you got you don't want to be the person whose best days are behind them right you don't ever want to reach that age yeah you always want there to be something almost that you're looking forward to yeah it will bring joy and, and, and enjoying the present you know like i said dick van dyke yeah living uh, in the moment yeah i mean his, his thing that he commented on is when he hears music he dances when he hears uh, or he sings he goes it's not something you're supposed to do in public at this age or for that matter any age but i don't care it gives me pleasure. And it's like, he's 97 years old and he's still dancing. He might have a technique or two that we could use. You know, Zig Ziglar, who was a motivational speaker, probably the top of the line. Um, and he passed away several years ago when he was interviewed and they said, what was your best speech? And he said, I haven't given it yet. <laughs> That's a profound statement. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think it's great. So what's the best part of your life? It hasn't happened yet, you know, and of course there's that big black wall hanging out there somewhere in the future. Um, speaking of Dick Van Dyke again, as he said, we're all swirling the drain. Uh, just some of us are closer to the drain than others. Um, but until that moment happens and who the hell knows, you know, I'm in no hurry to find out, but maybe that's going to be the greatest thing we ever go through, you know, and we get to the other side and go, damn, Wish I would have got here sooner. <laughs> I spent too much time in that in that life. Don't know. We talked about at the beginning a little bit about the law of attraction. Mm -hmm. I believe you mentioned you were a religious science practitioner. Mm -hmm. What is that? Religious that's, science or the yeah, law of attraction? Yeah, that's my first time coming across. Oh, the, okay. Actually, both. We could go into both. Religious science is, and then what time is it? Yeah, we got, we, no, I figured we got to wrap okay. for you. Um, religious science is a spiritual philosophy, not a religion. I inappropriately named. Um, it was started, it was founded for the most part, it evolved around the 1920s by a guy named Ernest Holmes based on new thought, which started to come up in the mid 1800s, possibly even before. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the first people who kind of came across it. The concept is, uh, so <laughs> this, this could get me in trouble. Um, I'm a religious science practitioner who has trouble with four words, God, prayer, religion, and uh, church. Uh, because in my background, those have always been words that have been used to bludgeon other people. My God is bigger than your God. My religion is the right religion and yours is wrong. And I have been anti-religion as long as I can remember. So for me to become a practitioner seems like, 
how'd you find that? Because the philosophy is there is only one energy. We are all it. Some people call it God. Some people call it the universe. Some people call it spirit. Um, it is science. Everything is energy. You cannot create nor destroy energy, Einstein. So therefore, we have been around since before we were around in some format, whether there's consciousness or not, who knows, and we will be around long after we are, are gone. That energy will continue to exist. Um, so therefore, if we are all one energy and it is within us, too many dualistic religions kind of say there's a, and I'm not judging it, there's a God and there's a us um, in our philosophy in the spiritual philosophy, there is only one. God, if you will, doesn't stop here. God is within me, within you. It's within this wood. It's everywhere. Um, so if it is within everywhere, if this universal creative force is within everything, um, and we can harness it and go, okay, I have this force in me. Maybe I can actually, I don't want to make it sound like I want a million dollars and a million dollars pops up, but it's like, if I can start to imagine something, it's affecting the energy, and therefore something will come back. So it's like the power of positive thought. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, but it has a spiritual bend to it. And Norman Vincent Peale, who was, I think, the guy who originally did The Power of, what was his book? Uh, Win Friends and Influence People, I think. All these positive people, I mean, not only positive people, but a lot of the positive people who we associate have this as a core philosophy. Some of the more famous people would be Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, George Lucas, the force is founded on, on uh, this, this universal force. Um, so it's a basically, your life is what you have created. Not necessarily willfully. It's like, wow, I got cancer. Oh, and it wasn't like I prayed for cancer. But there's something that I have been creating, a, shall we say, a fear of disease or something. And the universe only knows how to say, okay, if that's what you want to think about all the time, let me help you think about that all the time. As opposed to some people, life always kind of works out right. You know, I don't mean like politically or whatnot, but it's like they just seem to be happy and things go their way. Maybe there's something to it. So law of attraction is that what you put into this universal medium comes back to you. And if you put into this universal medium, life sucks. You'll notice those people have pretty lousy lives. Life is going to suck. Yeah. And if, on the other hand, you say, God, I really love my life, then you seem to find more things to love about your life. Now, is part of it attitude? Without a doubt. Um, so it's a, it's a belief that if something is lacking in your life, change your thinking and your life will change. And it, anyway, it's, it's hard to explain, when, especially when one has reservations about using the word God, because <laughs> one, the minister, uh, what is it? There is one life, that life is God's life, that life is my life too, is how I think she words it. Um, but I like it because it's completely inclusive. It's, again, you and I are really one thing. You know, if you could see us on the quantum level, we would just be two balls of energy sitting here. Um, and quantum theory has proven that by observing something, you actually change it. You know, so if you observe something in a different way, you will change it in a different fashion. I think that's a great way to end this. Okay. Think positively. <laughs> Why not? Scott, it, it can't hurt. It can't hurt. That's yeah. and yeah. we've all met those people who are constantly 
in a bad state of mind mm-hmm. and who think very negative thoughts. And I don't think anybody would want to willingly go into that position. And again, they're doing the best they know how to do. You know, uh, until as a practitioner, part of what we do is is somebody says, my life's okay. Well, let's take a look at how you think. Let's take a look at your beliefs. You know, let's see what we can do to help you be happier. And the thing is, kind of your comment about the exercise, when I exercise, I feel better. When I have happier thoughts, when I have more, a lot of the philosophy is based on be grateful. Um, When I am grateful, I feel better. When I feel better, I'm more open to ideas. When I'm more open to ideas, I'll try new things. And wow, look at I got something new. Hmm, it just might work. Life seems a little brighter. Yeah. Okay, well, Scott, I really, I had a great time. Thank you. I, I appreciate this opportunity. Just to blabber for an hour and a half. Yeah. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find all your stuff, your articles, your website? Uh, sure, why not? Uh, let's see here. My website is thistimeimeanit.com. Uh, so that's one place to go to where I post a lot of my columns. I have a Facebook group, uh, called intentions, affirmations, and manifestations, which kind of starts how sounds hard to remember until you realize the acronym is I am intentions, affirmations, and manifestation. It's a positive group. Um, I can be reached at, uh, Scott Q at this time. I mean it.com. Uh, my column is in several newspapers in Northwest every week. I think those would be it. I, you know, I'm open for coaching or speaking or, you know, if it's legal and it's ethical and it makes a buck, I reach You're out. You're there. <laughs> give it a shot. And thank you. It, it's been an honor to be picked. I appreciate this. Yeah, it was a pleasure. We'll, yeah. we'll have to do this again. I would love to. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank you.